Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Before we move into what's what's the bulk of our parsha this morning, uh, we're going we're going to read the end of the episode of Nadav and Avihu, the two oldest sons of Aaron's who were consumed by fire while offering an offering that was not called for. We studied that last year at this time. Uh, and so we're going to look at the end of that story and then see what follows directly after that. So we'll turn to chapter 10, verse 12. And since, Pam, it was your idea, why don't you read? All right. <laughs> Moses said, spoke to Aaron and to his remaining sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, Take the meal offering that is left over from Adonai's offering by fire and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in the sacred precinct inasmuch as it is your due and that of your sons from Adonai's offering by fire, for so I have commanded. But the breast of elevation offering and the thigh of gift offering you and your wife and your sons and daughters with you may eat in any pure place, for they have been assigned as a due to you and your sons from the Israelite sacrifices of well-being. Together with the fat of fire offering, they must present the thigh of gift offering and the breast elevation offering which are to be elevated as an elevation offering before Adonai, and which are to be your due and that of your sons with you for all time, as Adonai has commanded. Okay, go on. Then Moshe inquired about the, about the goat of purgation offering, and it had already been burned. He was angry at Eleazar and Ithamar, Aaron's remaining sons, and said, why did you not eat the purgation offering in the sacred area? For it is most holy, and it is what was given to you to remove the guilt of the community and to make expiation for them before Adonai. Since its blood was not brought inside the sanctuary, you should certainly have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron spoke to Moshe, saying, uh, See this day they brought their purgation offering, and their burnt offering before Adonai, and as such has befallen me. Had I eaten purgation offering today, would Adonai have approved? And when Moses heard this, he approved. Okay, so Pam, tell us why you were so interested in, in looking at this that we really don't ever look at. I just find it very interesting that well, first of all, we don't ever study. I want to hear your take on it. So that's my number one reason. Um, but I think it's interesting that to me that he, he um, the sons, Aaron and the sons, were supposed to give uh, um, a sin offering and partake in a meal. And instead, they offer a, a burnt off, the, the uh, Olah, the, everything is consumed. And you know, I can understand as a father and as a brother, their, you know, his son and their brothers are just have just died. First of all, I don't think priests are required to eat when they're in mourning, but uh, you know, you wouldn't want to eat. But uh, but also, I just think for Aaron that maybe he, he felt that um, he has no mastery of this world, you know. That here his son, he could even protect his sons, and he's going to now make an offering for the community. I think he just said, just burn it all. It all belongs to God anyway, and just, you know. I think he acted as a father in this case, and, and not as the high priest. So by next week, I expect we will have your soliloquy written. <laughs> Aaron, right, approaching his obligation to offer, right, the sin offering and this whole, I would love to hear Aaron's speech, right? You know. And whatever he said to Moshe, Moshe accepted it. Which so so know. so what you're lifting up, I think, is really the crux of of what we see here. I think there's several issues that that this scene, right? This is a scene, um, and if we were Peter Pizzola doing bibliodrama, we would stage it, 
right? We would actually stand up and we would have roles and we would stage this scene. Um, because what we get here is this little paragraph, but really there's a lot going on here in this tiny little paragraph. Um, so, so we have Aaron who is completely in shock, we can imagine. Do you remember his response? What is his response to his son's death? Silent. And Aharon was silent. So Zach gave his whole speech yesterday on that line of Torah um, because it was Yom HaShoah, it was Holocaust Remembrance Day, and he um, has a bubby who survived, but her entire family, children, husband, parents, everybody was wiped out, and she never spoke about it. And so he said, Vaidom Bubby. Right? Bubby was silent. Because he says sometimes the only response to devastating loss is silence. But, but because that's all we get from Aaron, we don't know what's happening for him. We, we don't know anything. We can only imagine that he is stunned and shocked and, and in horrible pain. And he still has to do his job. So what we have here is the paradigmatic you know, example of when we are servants of something bigger than ourselves, what is our obligation to that service when it could be understood to be compromised by our own personal experience of suffering or of great joy? Either one can distract us so much that we don't really function very well in our role. So a lot of times, I think this is where we see the people who have been sick who are outside the camp, right? And then they go through this ritual in order to re-enter the camp, right? It, they're, they're, a mother who's had a baby is taken out of society for that reason, right? She's not expected to do anything other than tend this infant and this crazy new thing that's happened that she's a mother, even if it's her seventh time. She's still removed. And Aaron doesn't have that luxury. Aaron still has to show up to work because there's a bar mitzvah. <laughs> he, doesn't have the, he, it's not, he doesn't have the luxury to say, you know what, I just can't today. And so I think it's a, it's a, it's a scene that is filled with a lot of pathos. And what I like about the scene, because sometimes we don't always like what we read in Torah, what I actually like about this scene is that when Moshe comes to to bring them to task, to take them to task for not having eaten of the sin offering, which is what, by the way, makes it work. They have to eat, right? The, the life of the animal, we've talked about this a lot, except for the Olah, Right, except for the Holocaust offering, every other offering, someone eats. You participate in eating. That's the point. The point wasn't just to take the animal's life. You, you ate it. And the priests eating their portion of the sin offering is kind of what seals the expiation. And so here we have a tension. They need to eat it in order to affect expiation for the people. And Moshe comes to say, What's up? You didn't, you guys didn't eat your part. You didn't do your part to make sure that the people are in right relationship, that the space is in right relationship to the divine. What is up? So it can look like Moshe's being outrageous, but of course Moshe's feeling charged with making sure everything works. He is the one who invested Aaron. He consecrated Aaron and the priesthood, right? So Moshe feels a certain sense of responsibility because I think on some level, Moshe is dealing with having to turn over part of, right? Until Aaron and the priest, Moshe did everything. For better or for worse, Moshe's like, okay, I'll go to God and try to fix this. And he usually did fix it. He's now turning over a big part of whether the people will be forgiven or not to this other group, his brother, so I think Moshe's dealing with some co inner conflict about letting go, right? He wants to micro, like, that's got to be hard for him to, like, turn it over and trust it. They'll do what they're supposed to. Well, what happened? What's one of the first things that happens after he consecrates these priests? They screw up! And they blow up! 
and now they're dragging parts out of the like sanctuary. So maybe Moshe is just as grieved and feels responsible and feels horrible and now is panicked that, that once again they're messing up. What is that going to do? Right? We got the first two sons. They're dead. Now the second two are not doing their... He's panicked, I think. So both Moshe and Aaron are in these tangles of emotion. And so when Moshe goes to them, I really get a sense of, of urgent and kind of panic on Moshe's part. Like, what is going on with you people? Right? We can't afford another episode like the last one. And or and in general, what's going to happen if this priesthood isn't effective? So he goes to challenge that, to find out what the heck is going on. And finally, Aaron speaks. This is, this is where we hear Aaron speak. And what does Aaron say to Moshe's challenge? We get, we get expl- explanation points. We get, what's it called? Exclamation points put in there by the editors of the English. There are no exclamation points in Hebrew. So take them out. Maybe they're there, but we as the reader of Hebrew have to read them in, right? We don't have them in Hebrew. So what, all we have is, is Aaron speaks to Moshe. He answers Moshe, right? And says, okay, look, they brought et ha-chatat ve-et olatam. They did bring the chatat and they did bring the olah before God, right? And don't forget such things that have befallen me. Had I eaten of the sin offering today, would God have approved? So we don't know that there's an exclamation point. Possibly tears are rolling down Aaron's face, right? Saying, really? Really? You think it would have been appropriate for us to eat of that offering today? Meaning, to you really think we could fully be priests today, given what's happened? What, do you think that's what God wants? And what I love about this text is that Moshe says, got it. Understood. Moshe seems to understand that there is a tension between their obligations to serve as public servants and their inability to truly do that. Because they have to eat that offering in a certain state, right? And we know that priests were exempt from certain things if they were mourning close family relatives. So... That, that tension of when do you take yourself out of the game because you know you can't really attend. That if they didn't eat it in a certain state, that's, that's worse in a way than, than saying we're refraining from that part of the ritual today because we know we're not in the proper state. Um, there's a lot there, right, to, to discuss. There's a lot there to think about in terms of the times that we expect ourselves to show up to play a certain part that we're used to playing when we can't, right? I know these times when I decide, okay, I'm going to stay with that child five more minutes because she's like, you know, mommy, five more minutes. Okay, fine. I'll stay five more minutes. What do you think happens in those five minutes? Anything good? Does anything good happen in those last five minutes? Absolutely not. Because I'm not in a place where I can be a loving mom, right? I'm too distracted. I'm too tired. I've got, you know, other things I got to do once she's in bed. Like, and so I just, it's that tension, you know, of needing to show up to play a certain role and, and the wisdom to know, I think what Aaron is, is indicating is a a certain inner wisdom, a a sense of reflection, knowing he can't, he can't do it. He might could walk through the motions, but it, it wouldn't be, service, right? He's a grieving father. He can't really walk fully into the role of priest. Um, and, and I think Torah's message is, okay, all right, right? There are times we need to step out of the role that's expected because our heart is not there. And generally good things don't happen when we're so distracted, right? That we, and we're entrusted with an important role that 
good things don't happen. Um, God, what God would think that's better, says Aaron. Um, so it's fascinating that you know we see there's chapter differences in English and everything and verses, but of course the Hebrew doesn't have that. Mm-hmm. That this segues directly into other rules about eating that have to do with holiness that don't have to do with the sanctuary, but which have to do with the people and how they live every day. And so ties the priest's eating to the people's eating, and in that sense goes to, just because there's a priesthood doesn't mean you are not a holy people. right? They serve in a certain capacity on your behalf, but it's on your behalf. You are in relationship to the divine. They are in charge of mitigating that relationship and keeping everything the way it's supposed to go, but it's you as a people who are in relationship to the divine. It makes you an ankadosh, a holy people. And so just as the priests have rules around eating, like Bert said, now we move right into, and as he says, there's no break between what that line we just read, Moshe goes, oh, okay, got it, to the, to the next word, right? It's just the next, it, you just drop down. Even a period. Not even a period. <laughs> Exactly. Not, not to mention an explanation point. Um, thank you, Laura. Um, I know, right? Right? Just some, like someone said, there needs to be a sarcasm font. Like, I think there should be an, excla- an explanation point. All right. So we're going to roll right from that discussion about eating and real discernment around eating and holiness around eating, boundaries and rules that that govern the holiness of eating to this next sentence that somebody's going to read now. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the Israelite people thus. These are the creatures that you may eat from among all the land animals. Any animal that has true hooks and clefts through the hooks and that chews the cud, such you may eat. The following, however, of those that either chew the cud or have true hooks, you shall not eat. The camel... Although it chews the cud, it has no true hoofs. It is impure to you. The daman, although it chews the cud, it has no true hoofs. It is impure to you. The hare, although it chews the cud, it has no true hoofs. It is impure to you. And the swine, although it has true hoofs, with the hoofs cleft through, it does not chew the cud. It is impure to you. You shall not eat of their flesh or touch their carcasses. They are impure for you. Okay. What's a daman? The daemon. It's just another animal. So these these are the ones that you may eat of the land animals. Any animal that has, and, and look at the description. Something you can see about the animal. True. So we always go to that. So any animal that has true hooves with clefts through the hooves that chews the cud, such you may eat. I find this English dis- um, distorting in a way true hooves. Um, not so much. So, because I think actually it's the opposite of what the English implies. Split hooves, truly split hooves, look more like toes than they look like hooves. Right? A ho- think of a horse's hoof, you know, versus a deer's split hook, right? So one looks less animal than the other. The one that is permitted is the one that looks more like toes, less like hoof. So as Bert points out, it has to be, it's something that is visible that you don't have to know the category of animal. You have to know what a daemon is. You just see it. Can I eat it? Well, it helps if the distinctions are ones that you just look at. That I don't have to know what a daemon is. I have to know, does it have split hoof and chew its cud or not? Okay, so it's pretty easy to make that distinction. Right. But if we're going into any kind of meaning, which, of course, is our tendency, we're going to go into some kind of meaning about why these, not those. The split hoof, one theory goes, looks less like a hoof than a hoof. Um, and... So that there's something about domestication, right? It's not quite as wild as beasts with hooves that tend to, by the way, kill human beings, right? 
deer don't tend to kill human beings, right? Certainly not domesticated animals. Hmm? Right. So we're talking about beasts. We're talking about the things. Laura, work with me here. Things that, <laughs> things that might could kill a human being. I'm gonna make you work for it. <laughs> this is a tough room. So, right, rabbits generally don't kill human beings, right? So we're talking of the things that could. <laughs> who has a tendency to, and who doesn't, right? Okay. So, so that's one thing. The follow, and they have to chew their cud. Right? So rumination is considered in the ancient world, possibly if we go by this, you know, these are the preferred categories. Rumination was considered to be the better of the digestive systems. Remember when you eat an animal, you are eating what it eats. Right? So ruminants tend to eat what? Grass. Grass. Ruminants tend to be vegetarian. They don't tend to eat other animals. Why does that matter? What's off limits? Tell me what trafe means. We can't eat anything that was alive. Of course we can. We're, getting, we're about to I mean, eat that, something that Jews is mean, good. It's alive. Trafe is impure, but generally aren't they? Trafe is not impure. I mean, it is in the category of impure, but that's yes. What does it mean? Ah, hmm. Forbidden. Nope. This is interesting, right? Nobody. Everyone knows trafe, and nobody knows what it means. Tear. It means torn. 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 You cannot eat an animal that has been torn. You must shecht the animal. You must slaughter the animal. You cannot scavenge. It has to be killed in the proper... Yes. Roadkill is off limits. And something that was torn apart by another animal ah. is off limits. It's trait. It's torn. So anything that was a prey... Anything that was prey to another animal, to another animal is trait. You may not eat it. Later, trait came to stand for... Everything that you couldn't eat as part of the system of kashrut. But it means torn. So if you want to say in modern Hebrew somebody's crazy, they are metulaf. Like kind of torn apart, meaning up here. Metulaf, crazy. Right? So, and sometimes it's a good thing. You know, like, how were those musicians? Metulafim. Um, so, treif, torn. So, if you can't eat something that's torn, if it's treif, then presumably you shouldn't eat an animal that eats treif. Yes? So, so the animals we're talking about in general do not prey on other animals. They are ruminants. They chew their cud. They are, ruminants are animals that eat things that are very difficult to digest Hence, they bring it up and chew it and have that process continue because it's very hard to masticate certain grasses and stuff enough to digest them, right? So there's a well-developed digestive system for things that are very difficult to digest. Can I ask when it comes to fish? And fish? We're going to get there. Isn't that, isn't Not to worry. Hmm? Oh, we're going to get there. So okay. next paragraph, almost. Um, so, w one more thing I want to say. So, digestion, and what are hoofs about? Hoofs and toes are about locomotion. All right? So, think categories of digestion, locomotion. All right. Bless you. Love you. All right. Nine, somebody. Diane, read nine. These, you may eat a roll that lives in water. Oh, look at that, fish. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question because I knew it. Anything in water, whether in the sea Bless or you. in the stream, that has fins and scales, these you may eat. But anything in the sea or in the stream that has no fins and scales, among all the swarming things in the water and among all the other living creatures that are in water, 
they are an abomination for you. And an abomination for you they shall remain. You shall not eat of the flesh of their flesh, and you shall abominate their carcasses. Everything in water that has no fins and scales have shall be an abomination for you. Okay. So locomotion. What is the proper category of locomotion of things that live in the water? Fins. They swim. If they don't swim, something's up with that. <laughs> right? So it's suspicious. Well, because the water, they're all Ah, crabs? How do crabs, crabs locomote? Swim, but an eel swims, but it doesn't have fins. It just wiggles. Or ah. a snake. Ah, so the proper locomotion Has is fins. Yeah. Things that crawl in the water and crawl up onto the ground. Mm -hmm. Why? Okay, so first of all... <laughs> first of all... Why? Why? That's why. So first of all, this question... What a Jewish question. Why? <laughs> Why? Kasha! Because. Because. Oh, that's, that's how it is. Why do we prefer what we prefer? Why do we eat chocolate covered locusts and serve them to one another? Oh. They're kosher. Locusts? Yeah. But we all go, ew. Why do we go, ew? Because we are ethnocentric. Everything we eat, well, of course you would eat that. And if someone else doesn't eat it, why not? Or if they eat it, brain, my father loved brain. Ew. We go, ew, right? What is that? That is totally a culturally programmed response. Completely ethnocentric. That's who we are. We're all ethnocentric. So when we go to a question of why, we must, before that question, ask, is this the right question to ask? Oh. Right? Why do we wear pants? Don't know. Because we, like, we do. Like, some questions, why is not the right question? What does it point to? Okay. That's a way in. What does it mean for me that there are categories like this? That's a relevant question. How have our people understood these categories as meaningful for them? That's a good question. I'm going to suggest this question is not so helpful. It's really not helpful. Why is not a helpful question? Any more than it is in the face of tragedy. Why? Like there's a reason? It's just a response. It, it, it's a response. So this was our people's response to an understanding that just like the priests were supposed to remain holy, and there were lots of rules around what kept them pure and holy and ready for divine service, they had an understanding that what they ate did the same thing. And for them, they understood eating something torn was not appropriate for human beings who were living in right relationship with God. Why? We don't know. You could guess, because it's not nice. It's not nice. It's not pretty, right? To like eat something that a mountain lion left half of it. It's it's savage. I guess. Like we're not we're not going to get a yes or no, right or wrong. Yeah, that's it, Rabbi. That's the reason. Right? We we evolve as cultures, and our practices evolve. David. You know, it seemed like when we were talking about peace, although I had never thought about it until we did, that there was a rationale, albeit somewhat weak, that we were trying to find, we need to eat, so we tried to find the right type that was as gentle and as close to how we would think ourselves behave. We do not want to tear, okay? We're better than that. I don't see any of that in the fish. I, I don't understand anything. Maybe you is the only answer, but it seems like they just stretch too far. So, okay, so, but again, we're guessing at the answer. We're guessing that it's because we don't want to be savage. I think it's a fairly good intuitive move, right, to say we're going to eat a little more gently and respectfully if we have to eat animals. But there's other things that work too. It's not just being gentler and more humane. There was an understanding that there are categories, and there are categories that are more appropriate 
purer than others. They're, the others are not bad or wrong. They're just off limits. They're just off limits. They're not wrong. You can use their dye to make talit. You can use the snail dye to make a sacred object. It's not that they're bad or wrong. They are off limits for you to eat. One of, there's a theory that one of those categories is if it can live in the water and walk on the land that is, that is crossing a line that made the ancient world very nervous or that made the Israelites nervous. It should be in the water or it should be on the land. And if it's in the water, that means it has fins and scales and doesn't survive. Take one of those and put it in the bottom of your boat and what happens? It flops around pathetically and dies. Right? It, it can't survive outside of the water. So one theory is that that is a proper water animal. And you should be eating the proper water animals. The others are off limits. There's nothing wrong with them. You just can't consume them. A lot of those other kinds of animals are also scavengers. They don't eat plankton. They eat each other. They eat other animals. They kill other water-living things and eat them. Fish with fins and scales tend to eat plankton. You know, just kind of particulates in the water. They're not, they don't go to a, I mean, I'm just saying. This is not where we should focus. But I do have a question about the why, not the details, but the, the much broader thing. Okay, so we're going to hold that because we're going there next. Okay? We're, we're going to go to the big why for us, Bert. You know I'm going to go there for you. As a person definitely allergic to shellfish, maybe there was some kind of Jewish sensitivity to shellfish and people died. It's possible. So... It's possible. Carrying down generations. It's possible. Um, it's possible, but it, no. but because it doesn't hold for the rest of them, it doesn't seem to be a very powerful argument, right? So you know, people say, "Ooh, if you ate pork that wasn't right. prepared properly, you got trichinosis and died." Well, guess what? You eat cow or lamb <laughs> or goat that is not prepared properly, your death is just as miserable. <laughs> like, it's not. So, so people want one of the whys to be health. And Maimonides is among them, the physician. Maimonides wants to show, well, we knew long before so many others that these, it's not good for you. People, I love this when people say meat and dairy together are not, that is very difficult to digest. That is what, and it's like, okay, so that's, that's all lovely. And this is not to your point about shellfish. It's possible. Maybe people really drop, keeled over people. Okay, we're not eating that. That's very possible. Around these other things that people want to extend, you know, to be helpful, it's, just, it's a really weak, really weak argument, A. B, I don't like that. Why? I don't like it tied to health. Because for me, there is absolutely nothing of value talking about pure and impure if it's about health. The whole concept of, of some things are off limits, it's not because they're bad. That, that is part of what makes that distinction meaningful. There's nothing wrong with a tree in the living room in the winter. You all will not do that. Right? So there's something about distinguishing us as a people that is a positive association. It's not about don't eat that because it's bad for you. Does that make sense? It's about living into holiness. It's about saying those are perfectly fine. Those, you know, barbecued pork ribs, they are perfectly lovely. The neighbors can eat them. You may not. Because you are a holy people. So it is, in a sense, random. I mean, maybe not totally random. We're explaining ways that it might have made sense. It doesn't matter. They did not say, oh, well, we are not so savage. We are, right? For them, it was like, that's what's off limits. When we explore why those, we're exploring maybe how did that develop into a category. And we, that's fun. We can play with that. Um, lots of our commentators have played with it forever. But for me, that's not the meaning, which is, and I'm already getting into Bert's question, which I don't want to yet. Because um, then what is the meaning, right? If it's not health, and it isn't that we're not going to be so savage, then what is the meaning? So, but I promised I wasn't going there yet. Yes. An interpretation I read that made sense to me and goes along those meaningful lines is this was a way 
at that time to separate ourselves and that there were things we couldn't eat which meant that it limited our socialization and so we couldn't have uh, a meal with somebody who was outside of our faith which meant we couldn't meet people and intermarry and it kept us together. So again, I'm going to say biblically, I don't know that that makes a lot of sense because other people ate exactly what we're eating. The neighbors ate this too. A Canaanite could come over and eat at your table. You could go to a Canaanite table, presumably, and eat lots of things, right? You just couldn't eat the swine that they offered as part of their... And we know they offered... The Canaanites offered pigs as part of their sacrificial rite. So maybe some things were off limits because it was part of their festival. But there's nothing special about the swine, by the way. Here, notice that. Nothing special about the pig. It is not its own category. It is just a category because you might think... Because it has this, then it's kosher. But it has this, but it doesn't have that. That's why it's not kosher. It says the same thing about the daemon. Right? So there's no special anything about pork. Um, that got made later. So, but to, to your question, possibly, maybe not. I'm not sure it has a lot of biblical evidence. But what did happen is that's what became the reality. The reality became, and maybe they had a pig festival and you, they didn't want us going to the neighbor's pig festival because most Israelites would have been what? Converted Canaanites. So you don't want any of those new Israelites, those new Yahwists, you don't want them backsliding by eating, oh, it was pretty good. Baal had some pretty good ribs, right? So <laughs> maybe we should go, right? So you don't want them associating with that. So maybe part of that's there. It separates them from the swine festival to Baal or Asherah, possibly. But not all of this, right? you know, as a system, doesn't seem to point to the Canaanites would be eating the same fish. Does that make sense? So, but what happened in effect is exactly that, that this system of eating became a social separator between Israelites and the people around them, particularly in the era you know, when there was much more mixing of a different kind. Look at the whole... Um, look at the stuff in the Christian Bible about kashrut, right? It's all about, that was a big issue. Could you follow Jesus and not keep kosher? It's a huge issue. And finally, it's ruled that Jesus supersedes all of that. And so now, no, you don't have to keep kosher in order to follow Jesus. Because if you follow Jesus, you have to do all this. He's Jewish. If you're going to lean into what the teacher is about, the teacher was about this. So if that's true, then you got to keep going. And you got to be circumcised, right? So there's a lot of places if you want to convert people, it's kind of a barrier, right? It was a social barrier. And so what did they do? They, the Christians, the early Christians, very smart, pulled down that barrier. How far into it did they pull it down? Fairly early. Because the apostles are wanting to convert pagans. But you're not going to be very successful converting the pagans if you say, and you can't eat this and this and this and this and this, and you can only eat this. And it's the same as this other religion. Yes, yes, right. And so they tore down those barriers and it was very successful. Their conversion rate went way way higher than ours ever has. Maybe we can also see that it's another way of sacrificing. You know, this is what we're willing to forego in order to bring ourselves that much closer to God. And Okay. I don't know. Although sacrifices were something you participated in. You ate them. So we tend to think sacrifice, but think Hebrew. Hebrew is lehakriv, to come close. That which draws us close. So in that sense, it's similar to... Through eating, how do we come close? I don't think it's the give up part. Mm, okay. Right? I think it's the boundary part. Right. You know, which is about giving up, but it's also about eating this and eating it in a certain way. Right? And so in that sense, definitely it's tied to the idea of sacrifice. That it's lehakriv, to come close, to bring God close, for you to come close to God through eating. And so there have to be rules and limits placed on that to do it properly. Was this part of Leviticus written during the Babylonian exile? Oh, Sheldon, 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 my friend. 
You are pulling us into a whole nother scholarly mess. <laughs> a whole nother academic debate that is... Um, there's lots of arguments about early or late for these texts. Post-exilic, pre-exilic. Um, it is describing a pre-exilic reality. That's where I'll leave it. That was artfully done. How did you know that sense of deep sea fishing? Because I remember one day I had, I didn't realize how religious he was, but I think I made some sea bass and I, I went overhead and tried to present a beautiful meal. And he says, I can't do this. I said, why? That was scared. And I said, did that was so scared? I don't know. Different fish have it, like swordfish. No. Swordfish. I, 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 I guess I didn't have internet in those days. I'm more scared. I'm more scared. But I was very shocked. To say. But there was a whole category that you couldn't eat. Scales. Some fish that have scales at one point in their life, like swordfish. All right, Devora has just given us the rabbinic ruling on fish. Say it again. It says that later rabbinic op- opinions permit fish that have scales at one point in their life. I don't know if sea bass has, but swordfish. swordfish so if they start scales. with scales and grow out of them. Babies, they had babies, they had fish, they had scales, and they shed their scales, so they're it's kosher. All right, there you go. We have the ruling. All right, I wanna I wanna go through. I wanna go quickly through birds, and then then swarming things, and then we're gonna stop. On, on the text. But I want to get through this part of the text. 13, somebody. The following you shall abominate among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, and the black vulture. The kite, dolphins of every variety. All varieties of raven, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull. Hawks of every variety. The little owl. <laughs> <laughs> The white owl, the pelican, and the bustard. The stork, herons of every variety. The hoopoe and the bat. All winged swarming things that walk on fours shall be an abomination for you. But these you may eat among all the winged swarming things that walk on all fours. All that have above their feet jointed legs to leap with on the ground. Of these, you may eat the following. Oh, yay. Locusts. Crickets. All varieties of bald locusts. Crickets of every variety. (laughs) All varieties of grasshoppers. But all other winged swarming things that have four legs shall be an abomination for you. Right? (laughs) All right. So let's move on to the next section. Oh, wait, did we do, we did the, um, the bugs, right? Okay. Um, great, so let's finish 24 through 28. And the following shall make you impure. Whoever touches their carcasses shall be impure until evening. And whoever carries the carcasses of any of them shall wash those clothes and be impure until evening. Every animal that has true hoops but without clefts through the hoops or that does not chew the cud, they are impure for you. Whoever touches them shall be impure. Also, all animals that walk on paws among those that walk on fours are impure for you. Whoever touches their carcasses shall be impure until evening. And anyone who carries their carcasses shall wash those clothes and remain impure until evening. They are impure for you. That means we can't eat our kitty. (laughs) (laughs) Or your dog. What does it mean to be impure? Ah. So it says that you will remain impure until the evening. Ah. No one can touch you? Ah. You can touch your kids? So. So. So that's that's the other thing I want to talk about. All right. So when we talk about this category of stuff, and we, it's funny, nobody's brought it up yet. I can't believe this group hasn't brought it up yet. Maybe it's because you've been studying with me long enough. Um, But we keep seeing this word abomination, right? Where do people freak out about that word? Because it's an abomination. Men lying with men is an abomination. Nobody reacts here. How come? Because you've been with me for so long. I love that answer, Laura. 
Um, right. So notice we don't get upset. We don't get all like, ooh, abomination. How can you say that? It's so archaic, right? Because it's about food and we don't really care that much, many of us anymore about, you know, it's, it's the locust that's kosher, the kind of bug that's not, you know, and it's an abomination. Okay, whatever. Right? But it's interesting how we get all crazy about this word abomination when it's used in other contexts. It is very clear that the word to'eva that's used for abomination is about the state of ritual purity. It is very, very clear. What is important here is purity. We have talked and talked and talked about this concept. Tahara and Tum'ah. Just as the priests must eat in a state of tahara, in a state of ritual readiness, so too must the Israelites eat in a state of ritual readiness. That's our term in this room, right? For pure. And if you're in a state of ritual otherness, dysregularity, our code for impure, because English is terrible, to use for this. It's just terrible. We have too many associations with pure and impure, dirty, clean, right, wrong, sin, nothing. Get rid of it. Right? The other one we've used is the nuclear example, right? You know. Alright, so if you are in a state of ritual regularity, you that's the, that's you should be eating like that and eating things that are part of that system that will not lead to dysregularity to a disruption. And the things that lead to disruption are those things which are outside the category of the permitted. So if you eat something that is not permitted, you have now ingested something that is an agent of dysregularity. So now I'm in a state of dysregular ritual purity. So I have to Make sure I don't communicate that to anybody else. Right? It was considered contagious. So, you know, if I touch something that's an earthenware vessel that is an absorber, it's going to absorb my dysregularity. Yes? So that's not good because then that's going to spread and now we're, now we're all dealing with that. That is what, let's just remind ourselves, that is what sacrifice is about on some level. It is about blood being the ritual detergent that cleanses the Israelite communal space of all of those disruptions. Right? It's like ridge filler on your nails. <laughs> okay, maybe, maybe we need to edit the podcast a little bit. But, right? It's like... It's the, it's the reset button. Right? And returns everything to a state of tahara, a state of ritual readiness to be in relationship with the divine. Because if there is tum'ah, if there is impurity, the divine can't get there. It repels the divine. Because the divine is all kedusha, is all holiness, is all purity, and therefore it is, it is repelled by impurity. We're clear? If blood makes you, if blood is the cleansing agent, how come menstruating women are the opposite? Ah, very interesting. Blood as the life force is cleansing. Blood that is the result of a fetus dying or of a potential life dying, so the theory goes, but we're back to the why question, it's a little tricky, but the theory goes, um, that blood is about death. Oh. That blood, therefore, is like any kind of death. It is, by definition, a contaminant, a dysregulator. Even though we're commanded to bury our dead, right? So what? What now? Later, that becomes a much different issue that I think is about misogyny. So I'm not going to deny the misogynistic aspects of that. I'm not an apologist for the tradition. You know me, and trust me, I hope well enough to know that. It becomes, I think, an element of misogyny. However, in the original, 
everybody who's in a state of tuma was removed from the camp and from regular life. Duh. Right? Like, if you're disregular, you can't do regular life. We just saw it with Aaron. You can't do both. It's like multitasking. It's a myth. You can't do two things at one time. Your brain can't do it. What it does is micro-switch back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. They knew on some level that's not good. If you've got all this other stuff going on because somebody in your family died and you had to bury them, you are now dysregular. Step out and deal with that. Right? No problem. We're commanded to bury our dead. So it can't be bad because we're commanded to do it. Why would God command us to do something bad? That makes no sense. We're commanded to get unregular when somebody dies and we have to handle them. So women, when they were menstruating, were understood to be not in the normal state. (laughs) I am the first one to own that that is true. If I didn't have to come to work those days, that would be lovely. <laughs> Wouldn't that be lovely? Actually, it's like the three days. But, but. So, but it's like really, it, it understood that you're not in a state of regularity. And so just, just deal with that. And then later, it comes right to be something else that death wasn't ever. Right? And I think that is definitely related to the fact that it's about women. And about men's continuing fear of women's power. Um, and women's connection to things that are just like completely anathema to them, right? I, I really That's think because that we're is, smarter than that them. is true. Get to walk. Poor Bert. Poor Bert. I know he's so patient. He puts up with me. Just wait till Hillary's president. So much. Exactly. All right. It's kind of information. I was just checking. And we're going through all these different animals, what's kosher, what's not. I'm thinking, is there an app for that? And yes, there is. So you can download what is kosher foods. There you go. Thank you, Lynn, for keeping us educated and informed, even outside of this room. But some of us worry our jobs are in jeopardy because of apps. Right? What do you need a rabbi for? You got the app. Sure, Ruben. Uh, I noticed that uh, in this Parsha, God speaks to Moses and Aaron. Yes. And I assume it's because it has to do with the priests and their behavior. But is there any other uh, reason why God is talking to Aaron? Nice, close reading, Ruben. We've talked a little bit in the past about the two really powerful clans. Two really powerful movements or groups within the early Israelite settlement, early Israelite society, the Aaronid clan and the Mushite clan. So always the text is representing some kind of dynamic between the Aaronid clan and the Mushite clan. So the Mushites have God spoke to Moses saying, the Aaronid clan needs Aaron to be present as well. So whenever we see God spoke to Aaron and Moses, it is generally assumed to be an Aaronid addition. And who are the Aaronids? The priests. So, right, so it's a priestly addition. The priestly author, who's a, again, there's an argument, but a lot of people argue that the priestly writer is a late writer of some of these texts a later gloss, the priestly gloss puts Aaron in. So, nice close reading. Instead of asking why, well, just, we need to be careful about it. Is it, is it, probably, is it just easier to understand if we go back to putting the blood on the doorpost, not a sacrifice, but a way that the Israelites would distinguish themselves in the face of God, doing something Maybe a second. Doing something not in the normal course to say I am. To opt in. Yes. Yes. I think that is a great way to explain it. This is how you opt in to being a member of the people related to this God, Yahweh. Absolutely. All right. So let's look quickly at Pinchas Peli. He is somebody who is a specialist 
uh, in the mythology and rituals and practices of this time, including the ones that predate Israel. He uh, is a wonderful source for those of us who are fascinated by where pagan ritual shows up in early Israel, right? The reconstructed paganite, paganite, the reconstructed pagan rituals, right? I lo- I, I'm fascinated with that. So he's a wonderful source for that. Let's look at 116. Maimonides' idea, this is what Bert was bringing up. Maimonides' idea that Kashrut is to achieve good health. Maimonides, the physician, has lots written on that. Go read it if that is a why that you're interested in. Go to the 117. One of the pragmatic explanations, Lynn, for the dietary laws, has it that they were dating in order to separate the Jews from their Gentile environment. Okay, lots written on that. Go tse'umad, go and learn. Another school of interpretation, next paragraph, is the symbolic spanning from Philo to modern times, right? So that it's symbolizing what the underlying perception share, uh, never mind, um, turn your paper over to 118, and here's kind of a summary um, that I like a lot, Um and the one that's just being quoted just above this is that it's about us being humane, right? Not being savage. That really we're supposed to be vegetarian, but God gets it that we're not going to be. And after the flood, we're allowed to eat meat for the first time as human beings. It's not going to happen. But the, the Jewish ritual is about taking what is and moving us one step closer to what should be. That God gets it. That we are flawed, that we have appetites, that we need to be controlled in that sense by being allowed to do a certain amount of it, not all of it. So we move from, we should be vegetarians, we're not going to be, to, okay, well, what's the least offensive kind of meat eating that we can do? Yes? Ideally, according to to Torah, humans would confine their eating to fruits and vegetables, not killed for food. Right? Go down to accordingly. The laws of kashrut come to teach us that a Jew's first preference should be a vegetarian meal. If we can't control our craving for meat, it should be kosher meat, which would serve as a reminder that the animal being eaten is a creature of God. That the death of such a creature cannot be taken lightly. That hunting for sport is forbidden. That we cannot treat any living thing callously. And that we are responsible for what happens to other beings, human or animal even if we did not personally come into contact with them. This, for me, is the bottom line. This is what remains deeply meaningful for me about kashrut. The question is, how do we fulfill this today? Now, some people argue... Hello, Rabbi Bernstein. Uh, It's written for us. How you fulfill this today, I don't agree. For some people, that remains the most meaningful way to do exactly what this is saying, to have consciousness and holiness around eating, the idea that something shouldn't suffer. We don't kill for sport. We don't kill that which was torn apart. You know, we try to remain as close as we can to the ideal of this animal only ate grass and it wasn't eating other things, right? That we're trying to stay in this, this level of compassion and, and, and empathy for other creatures and to maintain our humaneness so that we are more humane and treat other human beings with greater kindness. Okay, I totally buy that. I'm totally down with that. For me, this is not the most powerful system for that. It's part of it. There are certain things I don't eat as part of a traditional kashrut practice just because that's the way my ancestors did it. That's the way they expressed living into these values. And I opt in to their peoplehood every time I don't eat pork, every time I don't eat a cheeseburger, every time I don't eat shellfish. I opt in to say my people understand one of the ways we get at all this that I just read to you is through that. Okay, but that's kind of where it stops for me, frankly. In a minute, David. Um, that's kind of where it stops. What I would love us to be about in this community, and we talked about this in the senior staff yesterday, Bert, heads up, um, is maybe we need to revisit the question of kashrut, past a kashrut policy that's about this. Maybe we need to start thinking about a kashrut policy here, and then for each of us what that means, 
that really is about how do we eat in such a way that is about controlling our cravings and that right is about being sensitive to the deaths of the creatures that we're eating as well as the human beings who are involved in bringing that food to our tables. So those who are involved in the movement for a Heckshert Zedek are people who are saying what really it means to be about this kind of holiness is looking at a Heckshert from the word kosher, right? A stamp of approval that something is kosher. We need a Heckshert Zedek. We need a Heckshert that says this meal, this food, nobody has been harmed in bringing this food to your table. Workers have been paid fairly. They get lunch breaks. Whatever, fill in the blank. They get health care. The, the, the people who are involved in bringing you that food have been treated humanely. And that the animals were killed in a way that is expressive of our wanting to be humane. And that veal, that is a little baby cow that never gets to leave a pen, should not be considered kosher. I don't care how it's slaughtered and what happens to it about soaking and salting. It doesn't matter because you have violated already the whole why that is important to some of us, right? Is this the why of kashrut? I don't know. This paragraph I just read you from Pinchas Belli, but for me it's compelling. That's very compelling. So how do we talk about what should be off limits? Styrofoam. Should just be plain trafe, right? It's just off petroleum products should be off the table. Don't serve anything on them. It trace your food. Just make sure chocolate and vodka are okay. Chocolate <laughs> and vodka are fine as long as the folks growing and picking the cacao are treated justly. Because in some countries, and I don't mean to get on you, Sheldon, chocolate is a big. Chocolate and coffee are big ones because the people who harvest that, their children either have shoes and an education or they don't. Just based on what are you willing to pay, right? Or how much do we know about, about that brand, right? And sweatshop labor, sorry, those clothes should be off limits. Here's the challenge for us. The challenge is all of that is very, very cloaked. It is very hard to find out where certain brands or certain you know, foods are made or where they get their beans from, exactly which farm in that region. Is this a sustainable farm? Right? So some things are marked. You know, we certify it as grown sustainably, our workers are treated fairly. Frankly, that's all we should be buying. Really. But right, we're not there. But I think you know it's a conversation worth having about. Should we have a kashrut discussion about what else would fall into the category of off-limits based on our reconstructionist progressive Jewish values? Dora? I think you just said a movement. I think that really resonates a lot with me. And I think what it says here about the Chicano worker, the Latino workers that were picking grapes, it's not really about them not being Jewish. I think it's more about how they were treated as workers. So I think that's what we should look at as Jews, not who's picking our grapes or who's taking care of our fruit and vegetables to make it kosher, but how are they treated? Whether or not they're Jewish or not, it's, it's how they're treated as workers. Right. So, and, and I think that's what you should bring up here is this... Being humane. Right. Right? Yeah, I mean, that's what it says. Well, so, it's, um, it's, it's, that's what it resonated with me. I want to be clear that that's about wine. Because it could have been, if a non-Jew, at one time that meant pagan, there wasn't Christian, there wasn't Muslim, there was pagan. So if a pagan touched your grape stuff at a point that it was considered wine, it could be used for idol worship. And it trafed the whole barrel, like it trafed the whole thing. So, so I personally do not drink kosher wine. Because I believe what makes it kosher is that a non-Jew did not have contact with it past a certain point. And I find that not only offensive now, but completely irrelevant to the conversation about values. I'm not saying there isn't a value in supporting kosher wineries and in supporting Israeli wines, whatever. I'm saying it's not a meaningful category for me because of what you just said, right? That it should, I don't care, who, you know, because we don't believe anymore that it traits our wine that they're going to use it. And I, it's so crazy, uh, leap now for that to have any meaning that for me it's completely off the table. Okay. 
issue where, okay, you've got you've got these farmers employing these illegal alien, you know, illegal people, and or presumably here illegally, and and they're being paid substandard wages. But then, so then we say, okay, we're not going to buy that. But then they're not, they're not employed anymore because people aren't buying. Let's say if it was enough. And, and then what happens to them? I mean, it becomes even worse. So, so, so without getting into the details of it, my answer to you is we don't know. Because we haven't had that conversation. And we don't know enough, you and me, about the economics of that to know crap, right. pardon my French, about even where to begin that discussion. I would say with you, I agree with everything you just said. And then Devorah, who has a lot of experience with this stuff, would say to me, uh, Rabbi Bernstein, respectfully, let me tell you what happens to those workers. They are trafficked. They are kept at... So we don't know. That's the Shonda for me. That's the shame, is that we don't know even the first level of ways to discuss exactly the dilemma that you just described. But there are people who do. There are people who talk to these migrant workers. There are people who talk to these illegal aliens. And they'll tell you, okay, don't buy the fruits and vegetables and make sure you're pressuring X, Y, and Z agency to regulate those. I don't know. I'm just imagining it is hugely complicated, but we don't have the conversation. We don't have the conversation about it. Why not? Right? But we, we're very clear about our country policy here at KI, which I'm glad we have one. But I would like us to think about taking it another level so that we start to at least get educated, right? And, and have the conversation without knowing exactly. Look, God willing, it would be a 30-year process. But at least we'd be engaging and it might influence what we actually buy at our grocery stores or not or where we shop or even as we're having the discussion and haven't decided what to do about it. Yeah? The right. team and the committee are fully so I think it should be a joint task force. I think it should be a joint conversation between religious practices, tikkun olam, as a starting place, and then have some open forum conversations about what, what do we want to do? What, what is meaningful about Kashrut for us beyond the agreements we have about this or that coming into the building? You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.